Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be looking at the second half of The Affluent Society um, by, by John Kenneth Galbraith. We're over halfway through with uh, his writings as collected by the Library of America now. So once we're done with The Affluent Society, we'll have a four-part series on the new industrial state. Um, those episodes shouldn't take too long because they'll be kind of covering a bunch of of other bunch of common themes it's it's his longest work but it, it's got also like all of his books got a very coherent theme um really focused on just one aspect of the american economy and affluent society of course is dealing with affluence and how do we define affluence well it's not quite post-scarcity he never uses that word but it's it's after scarcity in a way. Uh, it's uh, at a you know he he says that the conventional wisdom, basic economic logic that people live by, and understand and learn in school, and make policy based on is essentially of an economics of scarcity of of managing and distributing scarce resources. And he says you know that's all well and good for that time for the 18th 19th century but we're not in that world anymore a world of affluence must be played by different rules rules based on 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 the fact that there is uh if anything too many goods and services out there too much choice too much we're too close to full employment and you know when you have a scarcity you have full employment because everyone needs to work to live in affluence you have you have full employment because everyone needs to consume. And that is where you start to get discontinuities in the economy, uh, disruptions, um, imbalances, he would say, between public and private spending. And then towards the end of the book, the part I'm going to look at today, he starts to ask questions like, how can we get out of this trap? Uh, you know, as great as affluence is, it has some downsides. And how can we solve them? And what can be our foundation for a different economy? in the in the future building off the logic of affluence now i'm going to jump right into the second half of this um book with chapter 13 the bill collector cometh and i think i misspoke last time i i kind of uh you know i was reading some richard wolf and stuff and you know how he focuses so much on debt in the in the 70s 80s 90s and up through the great recession that you know i i guess i may have had the wrong impression that consumer debt was less significant prior to 1970 because wolf's argument which i do urge you to read at some point his argument is that once wages got flat uh started flattening in 1970 real wages and productivity went up workers who are used to seeing substantial increases in their in their standard of living generation to generation and year by year basically started to continue that trend but only through debt so they would you know take out a mortgage on their house or you know get the credit card or whatever but however it was done basically consumption continued to rise basically through debt and you know and that's of course just kicking the can down the road 
Um, but, and, and my impression from those arguments was that in the 60s and 50s, it wasn't so bad. But Galbraith points out in this chapter that actually debt is increasing and debt is increasing to meet consumer demand. So that disconnect between, that imbalance between production and capacity of society to consume was becoming a real thing, uh, even at the time he wrote this, which was, you know, it was, this was published in 58 uh, and stayed in print afterwards. It became very influential in the 60s and the, and the policy making of the 60s. Um, but yes, this idea that debt must uh, meet consumer demand, maybe not as, not to get, maybe the difference is the gap wasn't quite so big and there didn't need to be so much debt to meet consumer demand. Um, but it was there nonetheless. Um, and it actually gets into how different types of commodities, different products have different ways of financing and, and that can target different consumers and things like that. But it's not too important to get into those details. I just wanted to acknowledge that, that maybe I misspoke last time or forgot this part of his argument. I almost certainly did or else I would have mentioned it uh, instead of making a, a foolhardy statement. Um, now, but I think overall Richard Wolff is still right that just the amount of debt must have increased dramatically since the since the 1970s. It doesn't mean there wasn't debt before. It just was uh, increased in scale. Of course, you had consumer credit in the 20s and, and even starting in the late 19th century for big ticket items. Um, so chapter 14 is called Inflation. And he starts out kind of going back to an old theme we read about in The Great Crash, which is the importance of, of kind of the media. And he talks about just like the drama of inflation, how inflation has become this kind of misunderstood a specter in the economy, um, partially through how it's reported on and how it's taught, this idea that somehow, you know, inflation is a very, very dangerous thing. Um, and he kind of says that we shouldn't, we don't need all this drama about inflation. It just is a function of an affluent society. And why is that? Well, because you're nearing full employment and you, and you have this vastly expanded consumer choices, right? So really where the inflation is made more dangerous is in the price-wage cycle, which he does get into quite a lot in the second half of the, of the book. And, you know, the price stability becomes a very important part of policy, monetary policy, but also of, of corporate planning and corporate policy, as we'll see in the next, in the next book. He does say, though, that it's not only unions. I mean, the unions are the most quick to get blamed, right? And I've had even, you know, politically sympathetic people say to me that if you raise wages or if you give a UBI, if you raise the minimum wage, prices will just go up the same amount. And I don't really think that's how it works. Uh, that's, you know, wages, the price-wage cycle may affect inflation. That's obviously this idea that, you know, if you have to raise wages, that's going to increase cost for businesses and they'll have to charge more for their goods, right? But, you know, wages aren't, you know, the, the only factor in a business when setting price. You still have the market, of course, setting, helping to set prices. So there's other factors there, right? Um, of course, not all firms can't always sell you know, at the same rate of profit every year, you know, they, they have to deal with the market um, as well. And there's other issues here too. Even if you hold to a labor theory of value, there's still the supply and demand for, the, for setting the price. And he goes on a little bit about who's affected by inflation. Um, I kind of skimmed over a little bit of that. Um, obviously, 
debtors are most benefited by inflation, creditors are the most harmed, or people on some kind of stable set income are also harmed. Um, but you know, he just kind of explores the problem of inflation, and this leads into a long discussion he has that goes on for several chapters over monetary policy. That begins with chapter 15, a chapter called The Monetary Illusion. Um, and he starts out saying that basically the British controlled the, you know, the rate of the value of money throughout much of the 19th century just because they, they had the most power in the central banks and they had, you know, they had the gold supply. That was still in the gold standard, right, in those days. So that limited what the central banks could do because the supply of money was relatively you know, set. The bank apparently could do some things, but it wasn't as flexible as modern banking and modern central banking where you have fiat currency. And there's a conflict, he thinks, uh, between the interest of central banks and the interest of consumer credit, which, uh, so we kind of get back to the debt question that he explores in chapter 13, the bill collector cometh, you know, <clears throat> because of course the interest rates set by the central banks are going to affect the interest rates for, for credit cards. And he writes this, quote, there's no chance that monetary policy can have even a minimal effect on consumer spending while its conflict with the machinery of consumer want creation remains unresolved and in degree e even unrecognized. And while we concede the paramount importance of the latter and through the reasons we have not fully seen, there is in fact considerable agreement that monetary policy does not make any effective contact with consumer borrowing and spending. And if you ever had a credit card and, and noticed its rate compared to the rate that central banks lend out money to, to other banks, um, I think you understand what, what he's saying. But the point he's making is that, you, you know, lowering interest rates on, on, in the central bank is not going to lower interest rates enough on credit cards to speed up consumer spending or the other way around. Um, there's a whole other market for that. Um, now, I w it would... Uh, well, I think we have to talk a little bit about modern monetary theory here when we start to look at Galbraith's conception of, of, of the affluent society because it's mixed arounds. And, you know, he, didn't, he doesn't have this language. Um, essentially, my understanding of modern monetary theory is that production is really limited only by the productive capacities of the country. The labor supply, the resources, the, the factories, right, the supply chain, whatever. And money is not really, and taxation doesn't really affect that very much. Like money itself is not your limitation on resources, right? Your limitation on resources is the actual resources themselves, the factories, the workers, the labors, the knowledge, all the things that are more material. So when you have fiat currency anyways, if you're on the gold standard or if your currency is controlled like Greece's was by German central bankers, you're not going to have that same flexibility. But if you do have a sovereign currency, you essentially can just print money to fund whatever needs, including up to full employment, um, achieving full employment. Uh, and Galbraith, interestingly, because what I've heard of mo modern monetary theory is that that's a goal that's worth achieving um, because you need full employment to maybe do the green transition or or it's a way to kind of provide re you know health care for everyone or whatever it might be the employment model becomes a way to doing that. But Galbraith, as we'll see. Um, all right, what was that? Um, <clears throat> that was uh, the cat knocking over my recycling bin. Sounded worse than it really was. Um, anyways, where was I? Modern monetary theory. 
Um, so, yeah, the different goal, like if you want to achieve certain goals, um, let's say full employment, the government is basically free to print as much money as necessary to do that. All right. And whatever that goal may be, uh, you can do that. Um, now, won't this have an effect on inflation? Sure. But this is why we have taxation. So taxation then, I mean, basically the government prints money when it spends and it takes money out of circulation when it, when it taxes. Now, in practice, it's more complicated when that, right, you know, whatever the Treasury Department does. But in essence, taxation takes money out of the supply. And so it's not really a budget deficit. It's just essentially inflation, inflationary, right? Um, now, of course, there may be other good reasons for taxation, like equality, right? Like the left would say the main reason we for income taxes is to is to create a more egalitarian society. So you have very, very high in income taxes on high top end earners in order to create a more egalitarian society and more balanced public and private spending. But my understanding is modern monetary theorists say taxation is is not not the only way to achieve the goals. It's more about the spending itself. And now what's your limit of your, because you can't do everything, right? You can't just build the Starship Enterprise just by spending money. Obviously, you'll be limited by your technology and your capacities and your education of your workforce and all of that. Um, now, again, Galbraith doesn't get into this, but I think he gets close to when he talks about the way monetary policy fits into the affluent society and, and deals with themes like of, you know, do we want full employment? What can monetary policy um, how can it achieve that? But what he says it can't do, here's, here's where the key is. What he says monetary policy can't really do is, is control that much about prices or stabilize prices. Um, and this is, this is what monetary policy would be the most conspicuous in an affluent society. Like if monetary policy could substantially reduce credit card interest rates or affect the prices of goods on the shelf, of course, in an affluent society, that would be noticed because that's it's a consumer society um, by and large. But that's not really what it does. It does different things behind the surface. So you end up with it doing kind of magical alchemical things that no one really cares about. Uh, unless you're kind of someone who's a policy wonk interested in those sorts of things. Um, all right. Uh, Chapter 16 kind of continues this uh, discussion with a chapter called um, Production and Price Stability, where he then says, what can be done for, for price stability? Essentially, if it's not monetary policy, you're left with fiscal policy, right, which is taxing and, and spending. Anyway, so this whole section, here's how he concludes it at the end of this chapter. Uh, um, we are impelled by present attitudes and goals to seek to operate the economy at capacity where we have seen inflation must be regarded not as an abnormal, but as a normal prospect. This same attitude, which leads us to set store by capacity use of plant labor force, largely deny us the use of measures for preventing inflation. Monetary policy collides with the business of consumer demand creation. And since it works on business investment, it's in conflict with our emphasis on growth. It is also ineffectual, discriminatory, and possibly dangerous. Fiscal policy is sharply at odds with the commitment to the level of output that ensures full employment and that accompany economic security. Direct controls, which in theory might reconcile high employment with price stability, are under a heavy ideological cloud. We assume that we must have them in unworkable mass or not at all. 
They are in ostensible conflict with the goal of efficient production. And that has anciently been identified with market allocation of resources. Um, and then he goes into how you have two basically, the, the, the conservatives want to use monetary policy and the, I guess the more liberal side want to use fiscal policy to achieve these goals. But he's, he, I mean, his whole point here though is inflation is just part and parcel of an affluent society. And there's not much that can be done about it. Um, so then we get to chapter 18, which is a, kind of the final part, I want to say, of the of this book, the final, and it, it goes over for several chapters, but it all is thematically tied to the question of essentially, we know we can produce, we have solved the problem of production. We no longer have scarcity. It's not like the good old days, you know, in the 12th century, when the choice of what to produce was sort of made for you. You know, you produce food, you produce your essentials, you, you know, and if there's any time at the end of the year to make anything else, you know, or if you have any surplus at all, maybe you can sell it to cities, and then there can be some debate about what that surplus can be used for. You know, do we need more blacksmiths? Do we need more farriers? Do we need more, do we want to have more monks in, in monasteries? Whatever. But you're not going to have much surplus. Once the problem of production is solved, the question is, what are we, so what do we produce? Right? And this is tied then to the question of poverty, because obviously, if you have post-scarcity of some sort or affluence, poverty is kind of preposterous. And yet it exists in America. So that's in the backdrop of this whole discussion too, is that why don't we make the decision to take this productive capacity and ensure everyone's basic needs are met first? And then we'll still have an enormous amount of wealth above and beyond that to, to spend on whatever. Now, uh, obviously you got this problem of of poverty versus wealth in an affluent society and the preposterous nature of poverty in an affluent society. But really the, the heart of this divide, this imbalance in this chapter, the theory of social balance, is the public-private spending. So here we get to, I believe it's here, his famous description of, of how ridiculous it is that we have all these malls, all these, all these consumer goods, an endless amount of consumer goods and potholes and, and our roads are falling and our schools suck and our libraries only have old smelly books and whatever else. Um, that is this, that's, that's decisions were made to take this productive capacity and using those resources for private production and not for public. And think about it. He's saying this at a time in which taxes on the 1% were like 90%, right? when you still had those kind of New Deal, World War II level tax rates. At a time, this golden age of capitalism, when a huge amount of the government spending, you know, a huge amount of the national GDP was government spending. Um, we don't live in that world anymore. We've, we're 50 years into neoliberalism where all these f sectors have been cut. So whatever he's saying here is, you know, a, a several orders of magnitude more important now. Um, because the public sector has been so eviscerated over the over the years, so I think if you would look at this now, he would say, you know, you know, I was right then, and it's even more crazy now. Right? Of course, he did live to see the 21st century, so um, I, I really don't know what he he did. he's kind of modest about these things in his introductions. He doesn't dwell into too much the, the current economic climate. He says a few things about unions, but it's not his focus. 
Um, so we have this public-private balance. And then, of course, what's the most logical thing that you want to have public spending on? And that is your natural monopolies. So he has a little section here on, on, on natural monopolies. He quote, with the rare exceptions such as the postal service, public services do not carry a price ticket to be paid for by the individual user. By their nature, they must ordinarily be available to all. End quote. So that's, the, that's how we define a natural monopoly, right? I guess it has two features. One is it... It, it, it needs to be somewhat universal. So the post office, water, utilities, firefighting, police, all that stuff, it's, they're all universal programs. And second, it, it wouldn't make any sense for there to be a market for them, right? Like, you know, you wouldn't want to have three water pipes in your house and then you check every morning the price of water for the three different companies and you choose the water that is most affordable to you. It'd be ridiculous, right? So instead, you either have a public corporation provide those goods and services, or you might have a heavily regulated um, private corporation do it. Either works, um, but they 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 sort of are public goods, and that's what he means by public spending, um, obviously. And and you know, and you can add to it your schools. He's spent a lot of time thinking about schools as a solution to this problem for reasons we'll get into in this book and the next book. But anyways, uh, that is this quote-unquote theory of social balance. It's just uh, in an affluent society, you end up with this discontinuity between public spending and private at a time when there seems to be more than a well, enough wealth to go around to, to not have to make that brutal choice. So then we have the investment balance. This is chapter... Chapter 18. And this is kind of looking at the same question in a way, like this imbalance, but now it's an imbalance in, in investment and where does the money come from? Um, and, and, you know, what is invested income? What is capital? What is it spent on? Well, it's, it could be spent on technology, educating your workforce, capital improvements. Um, but ultimately, the question that comes at the end here is who's to pay for human development? And one of the downsides of of this disconnect between public and private spending is private firms can benefit a lot from a well-developed public sphere because well-developed public sector because they can pass on certain costs uh, and you know instead of having to train the workforce yourself you can have your school universities and high schools train your workforce and so this almost he's almost saying here that there's always going to be a necessity for public function, partly because capital just doesn't want to pay for a lot of essential public functions. Um, quote, there can be no question of the importance of the impediment. Investment in individuals is in the public domain. This investment has been increasingly essential with the advance of science and technology. There is more no machinery for automatically allocating resources as between material and human investment. Um, so the problem here is if human development is an essential part of the public sphere, then this disconnect between public and private becomes really problematic, right? And that's why he focused so much of his energy on saying, let's just build a, you know, all these schools and, and fully take on this job of, of training the workforce. I, I think he certainly would support uh, universal free college education. At least uh, I get the sense he would. Um, he's still thinking at you know more investment in in high schools actually at this point. Um, so then we get chapter nineteen, um, 
so we, we're done most well not quite I mean we kind of carry on this conversation but uh, that he started here with this discontinuity but uh, chapter 19 is called the transition and this is a, a chapter that just sort of does some review it talks about Keynes and it talks about how the conventional wisdom of classical economics has begun to fade away and being replaced with new thinking so it's basically this transition from scarcity to affluence and ideas always transform slower right but they start to and he uses Keynes as his example of how these ideas begin to change as well so you start to do see a real transition in thinking and policy and, and all that okay the last uh, four chapters deal with employment in various ways I, I think it does connect to his other themes but I guess I guess it's separate um, Chapter 20 is called Divorce of Productivity or Production from Security. And um, here's the issue. Um, affluence, uh, the constant creation of goods and services uh, to meet kind of an insatiable, endless demand, um, necessitates employment to all. Why? Well, if you have a significant bunch of population that can't consume because they don't have a job and they therefore have no income, that is going to be a fatal flaw in your your society of affluence um, so how do we solve this and and the most obvious way we do this is with unemployment insurance right so in a sense part of the solution is already there right the full employment if it cannot be achieved well you'll have unemployment insurance you'll have some kind of public um, social insurance program that provides unemployment compensation. I, you could throw in Social Security for old people or whatever on top of that. But that reduces the reliance on production as a source of income. And Galbraith's view is essentially we should expand this. Because first of all, I don't think he thinks we need so much production, right? It's, it's back to that old age old problem of how we've kind of double, tripled productivity since the 1950s and we're still working day hour day why aren't we working a three hour day or a two hour day if we're just as productive well we've consumed more right and we have more people working than ever and i think galbraith saying why don't we have a means to have fewer people in the workforce right and he says this is even getting to the ecological component which of course we can't stop thinking about today when we look at these issues right obviously having this many workers is devastating for the for the environment and for our ecology and sustainability will probably require less production and therefore less jobs. And so there, we need some kind of mechanism to provide um, income for people because we still have this consumer economy, this society of affluence. Um, so the, he says the first thing we should do is basically raise the level of unemployment compensation to the average weekly wage, right? And I'll make a note that during the COVID-19 epidemic, the United States raised the unemployment compensation to be closer to what the wages were um, and then he goes here's where he gets really radical quote the next step is to provide alternative sources of income unrelated to production to those whom the modern economy employs only with exceptional difficulty or unwisdom the ancient reference that to unemployment as a percentage of total labor force implies that labor is more or less homogenous in its employability this is far from being so um, end quote so either because of lack of education youth age whatever you can't reach full employment. And he says that's not even a good goal. We shouldn't have full employment. In fact, we should distangle employment from income, which is what the UBI people have been saying 
um, for a long time. So I don't know how I feel about universal basic income. I, I, I like it because it's a universal program. It's not means tested. Uh, it's, I don't think it's a path to socialism. I don't think it's, it's dealing with the problem of production, worker control, which still has to be dealt with. But I think it's a good concept in, in this sense that it disconnects employment from, from income. Right? You can still have a job and income from that, but your basic income is detached from your employment. And there, therefore, there'll be a, a, basically a constant stimulus to, to the economy um, or a constant source for savings for investment or whatever it might be. It's not all going to be spent, right? Some people will be more thrifty than others. Um, chapter 21 is called the redress of balance. So yeah, th this gets back to the question of how do we restore the balance between the public and private? Um, so that's why I thought that's why I thought that was the last issue. I forgot about the employment issue here, but it sort of comes back to the public-private spending. And what he says here is one way to redress the balance is more public spending. It's pretty obvious, actually. If you have a disconnect between public and private production, um, and that's a bad thing, or it has some negative consequences, if you want to restore that, just increase public spending. Pretty easy, right? And if you believe in modern, modern monetary theory, it is uh, easy, right? You would use taxation to reduce production in areas that you deem wasteful to increase production in areas you think are valuable, right? Like um, whatever it might be. Less, less making yachts, how do you do that? Well, you tax the wealthy to such a degree they can't afford yachts. And then you take that productive capacity in the economy and you redirect it to a Green New Deal or universal healthcare, right? That's how I think it would work. Um, now, what does Galbraith focus on? Well, he focuses on paying for schools. Um, and he thinks one way to pay for this could be sales taxes, because sales taxes will put some pressure on consumer spending. And you might get a little bit less consumer spending if you have significant sales taxes, even though they tend to be pretty regressive. Um, then we got chapter 22, uh, the positions of position of poverty. And so what is... This, we're almost to the end of the book here, and he comes back to this, the reality of poverty in an affluent society. Um, it's a bit unnecessary. It's, it's one of the most unnecessary, it's one of the se seemingly most easy problems to fix in an affluent society. It's because we're full of stuff. It's like, it's like if you have, um, you're in a house and you have a party and you have 10 people over and you have 15 chairs and two people can't find a seat. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And poverty in an affluent society is, is equivalent to that. So what is the solution to poverty? Well, he says uh, the remedy for poverty leads to the same requirements as those for social balance. The restraints that confine people to the ghetto are those that result from an insufficient investment in the public sector. So he says essentially some socialism. Uh, can eliminate poverty. He, he doesn't really do a specific policy list here. He's just saying, yeah, if you educate those people, if you have more investment in public housing, if you have maybe public jobs, that is going to, you, it's possible to eliminate poverty and we just haven't decided to do it. But I do think that this was have very, very influential on the war on poverty, great society programs. Um, chapter 23 is called Labor, Leisure, and the New Class. It's one of my favorite chapters in this book because it does talk about work. And 
he comes what I think is a fairly radical idea here, saying basically the future of toil is no toil. There, increasingly in an affluent society, toil becomes less and less meaningful, or at least the amount of toil an individual has to engage in is significantly lessened. Um, you have automation, mass production, and also a lot of our toil, and he defines kind of any physical labor as toil, um, is to build, make stuff we basically don't need or don't help us that much, right? So instead, he, he offers up a solution, and that is the creation of a new class. A new class is essentially our society of artists and poets and creators and YouTubers and, and podcasters and, and, you know, dancers or, and whatever. Creative people could be this new class, right? And that could replace toil for an increasingly large amount of the, of the population. So I want to end by reading the final few paragraphs of this book, not including the afterwards. Um, these all show up in the very last chapter on security and survival, um, which it's kind of an ironic way to end the book because he's essentially said security and survival are not really the problems anymore. Um, but here's what he says. Um, the day will not come soon when the problems of either the world of our own policies are solved. Since we do not know the shape of the problems, we do not know the requirements for solutions. But one thing is tolerably certain. Whatever the problem be, that of a burgeoning population or the space to live with peace and grace, or whether it be the depletion of the materials which nature has stocked in the earth's crust, which have been drawn up more heavily in this century than all previous time together, or whether it will be that occupying minds no longer committed to the stockpiling of consumer goods, the basic demands on America will be less on its resources of intelligence and education. Or sorry, will be on its resources of intelligence and education. The test will be less the effectiveness of our material investment than the effectiveness of our investment in people. We live in a day of grandiose generalizations. This can be made with confidence. So I'm going to stop there and, and, and comment. He's saying essentially we problem solve the problem of production. So let's just focus on increasing our human capacity. Uh, and the best way to do that is through education and schools. But I think we can think of things we can add to that list. <clears throat> Socialism. Um, next, uh, education. This is still Galbraith. Education, no less than national defense or foreign assistance, is in the public domain. It is subject to the impediments to resource allocation between private and public use. So once again, our hope for survival, security, and contentment returns us to the problem of guiding resources to the most urgent ends. To furnish a barren room is one thing. To continue to crowd in furniture until the foundation buckles is quite another. We have failed to solve the problem of producing goods. To have failed the problem of sorry, uh, to have failed to solve the problem of producing goods would have been to continue to continue man in his oldest and most grievous misfortune. But to fail to see that we have solved it and to fail to proceed thence to the next task would be fully as tragic. End quote. And I think that's somewhere we still haven't learned. Our obsession with GDP increases shows this, that we haven't really realized that we've solved the problem of production and we're still obsessed with, with increasing it when we don't really need to. And by not doing that, we're not thinking about how to actually make life better for all people. So um, that's it. That's The Affluent Society. Um, I think it's a great book. I think it's a wonderful examination of, of, of problems that are still with us. I think it's a great book of its time, um, and I think it's interesting historically, but I think it's still relevant to us today, and it's striking how many of his solutions are still being debated and still seen, 
seen as as being on the on the political left when you know I mean Galbraith was a Kennedy guy so he, he's not a radical but in any case I think the affluent society is a really 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 great book it's my favorite of the ones he wrote in this collection um, and yeah I'll leave it with that so if any of this peaks you if any of this interests you let me know and send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com in the next episode I'll be beginning a four-part series on the new industrial state which is his book about planning and a planned economy and we're getting sort of a bonus here is I will also be providing my commentary and my review on the People's Republic of Walmart by Lee Phillips and Michael Rozowski which is called How the World's Biggest Corporations Are Laying the Foundation for Socialism. That is about planning. And I'm going to be talking about the Iron Heel again a little bit, which is something uh, in, I, I covered in this podcast a long time ago, one of Jack London's books. But it makes some of the same points. So these are three works that don't reference each other that all make the same point that planning is good and it's not something we should throw out and... And, and, you know, let's not fetishize the small businesses so much. Um, not that Walmart is good, they're saying. Not that planning is necessarily good. It's essential. And, and we can't avoid it, so we might as well harness it for ourselves. But that will be a discussion for next time. So thanks, as always, for listening. And I'll see you then. is all again. Either way, it's still the same. Schools are crying, too. They can't do the job they want to do We can go to the moon and float in space